Okay. So, um, we got about 45 minutes, and I got one more sutta that I just got to cover. So, everybody fine with, can you make it 45 more minutes? All right. All right. The last sutta I want to talk about is number 22 in the Deca Nikaya, which is also one of those that made my list of top seven suttas. This is the simile of the snake. Okay. A little more light. Yeah. Sorry, Majjhima Nikaya 22. Sorry. No. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'll put the top seven on my website. (laughs) There is a translation of both this sutta and number 38 that I did. It's not a translation. I don't know Pali. But there was no good English uh, digital version of those two suttas. So I went through the uh, translations that were done at the beginning of the 20th century and cleaned up the English so that it's more modern English. And one thing about working with suttas, you can do lots of cut and paste because a lot of this stuff occurs in other suttas. So, you know, you just go find a digital version of, you know, this big section, it's done. So, uh, But it's an interesting way to look at a sutta in a lot of detail, you know, trying to rewrite it. So this one, same place. The Buddha's at uh, uh, Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anatapindika's Park. And on that occasion, a pernicious view had arisen in a bhikkhu named Aritha, formerly of the vulture killers. As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, those things called obstructions by the Blessed One are not able to obstruct one who engages in them. Okay, I can indulge in sensual desire because it really, really won't hurt. Have you ever, ever come across that one? Okay, several bhikkhus having heard this, said, Friend Aritha, is it true that this view has arisen in you? Exactly so. I believe that you can indulge in sense pleasures and get away with it. It won't hurt you at all. And then those bhikkhus said, Oh, Aritha, don't say that. And I said, Has not the Blessed One... uh, Do not represent the Blessed One. Do not uh, misrepresent Him. The Blessed One would not speak thus. For in many discourses, the Blessed One has stated how to... Obstructive things are obstructive and how they are able to obstruct one who engages in them. The Blessed One has stated how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much dukkha and much despair, and how great is the danger in them. With the simile of the skeleton, with the simile of the piece of meat, with the simile of the grass torch, with the simile of the pit of coals, with the simile of the dream, with the simile of the borrowed goods, with the simile of the tree laden with fruit, with the simile of the slaughterhouse, with the simile of the sword stake, with the simile of the snake's head, the Blessed One has stated how sensual pleasure provide little gratification, much suffering, much despair, and how great is the danger in them. Now, all of these are other suttas, most of which you can find in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha says that, you know, indulging in sense pleasures is like walking into the wind while carrying a torch in front of your face. Not a good idea. Okay, and and all the various other uh, similes that are given here. 
And yet, as though these bhikkhus discussed it with Aritha, the son of the, the formerly of the vulture killers, he wouldn't let go of his pernicious view. And so they went to the Buddha, and they saluted him and sat down to one side and said, Venerable Sir, Aritha, formerly of the vulture killers, holds this pernicious view that one can do obstructive things and they will not obstruct. You, go tell Aritha the master calls. So a bhikkhu goes to Aritha and says, the master calls. And Aritha comes and sees the blessed one, salutes him, sits down to one side. Aritha, is it true that the following pernicious view has risen in you? As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, these things called obstructions by the Blessed One are not able to obstruct one who engages in them. Exactly so, Venerable Sir, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, those things called obstructions, obstructions by the Blessed One are not able to obstruct one who engages in them. Misguided man, to whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses I have... Have I not stated how obstructive things are obstructive and how they are able to how they are able to obstruct one who engages in them? And the whole thing repeats with all the similes and everything else. But you, misguided man, have misrepresented us by your wrong grasp, injured yourself, and stored up much demerit. For this, you will be lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. You will even be known by people in the 21st century for your misguided view. Then the blessed one addressed the bhikkhus thus: Bhikkhus, what do you think? Has this bhikkhu Aritha, formerly of the vulture killers, kindled even a spark of wisdom in the, this dhamma and discipline? How could he, venerable sir? No, venerable sir. When this was said, the bhikkhu Aritha, formerly of the vulture killers, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping, head down, glum, and without response. Then knowing this, the blessed one told him, Misguided man, you will be recognized by your pernicious view. I shall question the bhikkhus on this matter. So basically, we get the same pattern as in the other sutta, but a different view. Bhikkhus, do you understand the Dhamma taught by me as the Bhikkhu Aritha teaches it? No, Venerable Sir. For in many discourses, all the similes come again. Good Bhikkhus, it is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me. For in many discourses I have taught that if you indulge in sensual pleasures, it will be to your harm. Bhikkhus, that one can engage in sensual pleasures without sense desires, without perception of sense desires, without thought of sensual sense desire, that is impossible. In other words, that if you engage in sensual pleasures, you're going to experience sensual desires. Something about the first hindrance, right? Hinders your progress on the spiritual path. So there's no way to engage in sensual pleasures without generating the first hindrance. Here because some misguided man some misguided man learned the Dhamma, discourses, stanzas, exposition, verses, exclamations, sayings, birth stories, marvels, and answers to questions. Now this phrase right here is kind of interesting and indicates that at least this part of the sutta is of a later origin. The um, lesser uh, Nikaya, the Kudika Nikaya, contains uh, stanzas, expositions, verses, exclamations, sayings, birth stories, marvels, and answers to questions. Now, the first thing in the list is suttas. Okay, so this is the suttas, all of the suttas. The suttas, which is what is found in the first four collections, 
and then all the rest of the list is what's found in the lesser discourses. So this would seem to indicate that this part of this discourse is a later thing after they had canonized what was actually in the suttas and got them organized. But having learned the Dhamma, they do not examine the meaning of those teachings with wisdom. Not examining the meaning of those teachings with wisdom, they not gain a reflective acceptance of them. Instead, they learn the Dhamma only for the sake of criticizing others and for winning in debates. They do not experience the good for the sake of which they learn the Dhamma. Those teachings being wrongly grasped by them conduce to their harm and suffering for a long time. I think the Buddha is saying uh, scholarship without practice is not a good idea. All right? You can learn all this stuff, but if you don't put it into practice, it's not a good idea. In fact, suppose a man needing a snake, seeking a snake, wandering in search of a snake, saw a large snake and grasped its coils or a tail. It would turn back on him and bite his hand or his arm or one of his limbs, and because of that he would come to death or deadly suffering. Why is this? Because of the wrong grasp of the snake. So too, here some misguided man learned the Dharma for the wrong reason, and it will be to their detriment for a long time. Learning the Dharma so you can win Dharma debates is like grasping the snake by its tail. All right. If you don't put it into practice, it's going to bite you. You're going to not fully comprehend what's going on. Here, Bhikkhu, some clansmen learn the Dharma, all these various parts. And having learned the Dharma, they examine the meaning of those teachings with wisdom. Examining the meaning of those teachings with wisdom, they gain a reflective acceptance of them. They do not learn the Dharma for the sake of criticizing others or for winning debates, and they experience the good for the sake of the they experience the good for the sake of which they learn the Dharma. Those teachings being rightly grasped by them conduce to their welfare and happiness for a long time. Suppose a man is seeking a snake, searching for a snake, looking for a snake, needs a snake, and it catches it rightly with a cleft stick. That is, he finds a forked stick and he puts it over the snake's head. And having done so, grasps it rightly by the neck. Although the snake might wrap its coils around his hand, his arm or his limbs, still he would not come to death or deadly suffering because of that. Why is that? Because of the right grasp of the snake. So too, some clansmen learn the Dharma and grasp it in the right way. Therefore, bhikkhus, when you understand the meaning of my statements, remember it accordingly. And when you do not understand the meanings of my statement, then ask either me about it or those bhikkhus who are wise. All right. The Buddha is very much into people understanding. If you don't understand, ask some questions. Okay. Bhikkhus, I shall now show how the Dhamma is similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, suppose a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water, whose near shore was dangerous, fearful, and whose farther shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Then he thought, 
this is a great expanse of water whose near shore is dangerous and fearful, whose farther shore is free and safe from danger, but there's no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, leaves, and bind them together into a raft. And supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the other shore. And then he did so. (coughs) Then when he got across and arrived at the far shore, he might think thus. This raft has been very helpful to me. Since supported by it, making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulders and go wherever I want. Now, Bikus, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what should be done with a raft? No, venerable sir. By doing what? By doing what would that man be doing? By doing what would that man be doing? What should be done with the raft? Well, that's a good sentence. All right, what should the man do with the raft? How Bikus, that man got across to the uh, uh, far shore, might he think, this raft, which has been very useful to me, uh, I got, it took me safely to this shore. Suppose I were to haul it onto the dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go what I want. Now, Bikus, and by doing so, that man would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I have shown you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Bikus, when you know the Dhamma to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even good states. How much... You should abandon even good states, how much more so bad ones. Okay, this is the ultimate teaching on views. The right views are a raft for getting across to the far shore. But even they have to be abandoned. Everything has to be let go of. In the Vasudhimaga, there's a simile for enlightenment. It says that one runs with the momentum of practice and grabs hold of a rope hanging down from a branch of a tree on this shore and then swings across to the far shore. Now, when you get to the far shore, what do you do? You completely let go, right? If you only let go with one hand, does it work? No. If you keep hanging on, does it work? No. You fall in the river and get eaten by alligators. All right? You have to completely let go to arrive at the far shore. This is a very, very accurate simile, just like the simile of the raft. All of these views and opinions that fall under the category of right view are parts of the raft. We practice them We use our hands and feet to paddle the raft. But in order to arrive at the deepest understanding, we have to let go of everything. We have to let go of even the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It all has to be let go of. It's just a raft. You have to get off the raft to actually get on the far shore. So this is the ultimate teaching on views and opinions. Use them to get to the far shore, but don't try and take them with you. Realize that they're just skillful means. Now, there's more in this sutta on views. 
There are six standpoints of views. What six? Here, an untaught, ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and disciplined in their dharma, regards material form thus. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. He regards Vedana, perception, uh, mental formations. He regards what is seen, heard, cognized, and encountered, sought, mentally pondered, thus. And the standpoint for views, namely, and this standpoint for views, namely, this is self, this is the world. After death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I shall, under, I shall endure as long as eternity. This too he regards thus. This is mine. This is I am. This is myself. Okay, so we get the five khandas again described as self. And we also get this self. This is self. This is the world. After death I shall be permanent, etc. Basically identifying with the world. Right? You don't even get to identify with the world, right? It's not self. Not that this isn't self and that's not self, but everything is me. The whole concept of me is just as invalid as the fire. Where does the fire go when it goes out? Okay, that has to be let go of. This idea of self is a side effect. It's a side effect of how we're built, right? It's just not a basis in reality. But we take either the constituents of me as real, as myself, or we identify with the universe and say, I am the universe. A well-taught noble disciple who has regard for the noble ones and their dharma does not make these mistakes. Okay? Since he regards them thus, he is not agitated about what is non-existent. So this is about as close as you ever get to the Buddha saying the self does not exist. All right? So you're not agitated about the non-existent self. When this was said, a certain bhikkhu asked the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, can there be agitation about what is non-existent externally? Can I be agitated about something that's external to me that doesn't exist? There can be bhikkhu. Here, someone thinks, alas, I had it. Alas, I have it no more. Alas, may I have it. Alas, I do not get it. All right? So, you're agitated about the fact that you want the big five-foot-wide color TV high definition for Christmas, right? And you're all worked up about it. And alas, you don't get it. Venerable Sir, can there be agitation about what is non... Can there be no agitation about what is non-existent externally? Yes, there can. Here, someone does not think, alas, I had it, etc. All right, so there's this big screen color TV and you're like, oh, okay, it's a big screen color, color TV, so what? Can there be agitation about what not, is non-existent internally? Yes, someone has the view, this is self, this is the world, after death I shall be permanent, everlasting. Eternal, not subject to change, I shall endure for as long as eternity. He hears the Tathagatha or disciple of the Tathagatha teaching the Dhamma for the elimination of all standpoints, 
decisions, observations, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, cessation, nibbana. He thinks, so I shall be annihilated, so I shall perish, so I shall be no more. Then he sorrows, grieves, laments, he weeps, beats his breast, becoming distraught. And that is how there's agitation about what is non-existent internally. You don't have to worry about losing yourself. You don't have one to lose. Okay? You're not going to be annihilated because there's nobody there to be annihilated. Okay? And then the fourth one. Can there be no agitation about what is not existent internally? Yes, same thing. Someone thinks that they have a view, they'll live for eternity. They hear the Dharma, they think, oh, I didn't have a self. Huh, interesting. And don't get upset. Okay. This is a really great sutta. I'm not sure that I really want to go on discussing all the rest of it. What I'm going to do is tell you that this is a really great sutta. You should read it. As I said, there's a translation of it on my website. So if you don't have a copy of the Majjhima Nikaya, I recommend that you take a look at it and read it. But what I mostly wanted to share with you about this sutta was the view that, you know, you can indulge in sensual desire and it won't come to your harm. It was considered a wrong view and if you hold that and the Buddha finds out, you'll sit there with your head down and etc. And that all views, no matter how good they are, are simply a raft to get you to the other side. So are there any questions about the portions of this sutta that I've talked about. Can you pass the... It's on. Okay. Yeah, just leave it on. Fair enough. What attitude should we have with regard to right view before we're getting close to the other shore. In other words, are we clinging to it? Is it just something that we're using as a skillful means? How, sh- how shall we view it until the point where we can let it go? It's a skillful means. If you cling to it, well, clinging leads to becoming birth, old age, sickness, death, and all the rest of the dukkha. Right? So if you cling to the view, that is, you go around identifying yourself as a Buddhist, That's one way of clinging to the view. And then somebody says something about those nasty Buddhists, you get upset, right? Okay, so if you're clinging to it, it's going to produce dukkha. What you should do is recognize that it's skillful means. It's the map. It's not the territory. It's a very useful map. And, well, we started with by not holding to fixed views, okay? So, if you can work with these views and not hold to them as fixed views, they will serve you. But if you start fixing them, this is the way it is, then you're stuck where you are right now, right? So, realize that this is just skillful means. This is a provisional way of understanding how the world works until I get some deeper understanding. Okay? 
and use these skillful means, knowing that they're skillful means that'll have to be abandoned. It's no big deal. It's like the raft. Knowing, oh, when I get to the other side, I can't take this raft with me. Oh, I think I'll stay on this side and get eaten by the tigers. That's foolishness. Being in the middle of the stream and paddling and thinking, oh, this raft is working really great. I won't get to keep it. Oh, dear, I think I'll get off and drown. It's not any good, right? It's skillful. You just keep using it. Realizing that when you get to the other side, you'll need to let it go. Other questions on this sutta? Okay. Now I want to talk about a late, a very late 20th century point of view that you may or may not have heard of. It probably will be remembered as a 21st century point of view. Um, and this is the theory of memes. How many people know about memes? Okay. Emmy, Emmy. A meme is an element of culture that is replicated by imitation. All right? So, there are lots and lots of memes. The first four no notes of Beethoven's Fifth are a meme. Right? I mean, I can just say that and it comes to mind, right? The whole symphony is also a meme. It's replicated by imitation. Somebody plays it again. You hear, oh, that's great. I buy a copy and you replicate it. Um, Dharma talks are memes. Right? The Buddha said it. People appreciated it. They imitated it. That is, they memorized it and they said it again. So the Dharma talks themselves are memes. The ideas in the Dharma talks are memes. Right? The ideas are transmitted by talking about the ideas. So there's the meme of the sutta and there's the meme of the ideas in the sutta. Dances are memes. Wearing your hat backwards or forwards, it's a meme, right? Uh, words are memes. This is a meme, right? Meme is a meme. Right? The concept of memes is another form of meme. All this is passed on by imitation. So where am I going with this? It turns out that our bodies have arisen because there is a replicator known as genes. These genes replicate. This is what they do. And in a sense, our bodies are simply a means for genes to replicate themselves. What Darwin discovered was a way to remove the ghost from the machine. That genes could explain it all. He didn't know about genes, but he discovered natural selection, survival of the fittest. And once we had the genes as a mechanism, we no longer had to have God designing the world and creating us in his image and all this sort of stuff. This is simply the outcome of replication. When the replication device gets sophisticated enough, one of the things that can arise is the ability to imitate. 
right? So the replication device, a human being, gets sophisticated enough that it can now imitate the actions of other human beings. In particular, the, it has the ability to imitate the actions in terms of making the similar sounds, right? <laughs> means there's a saber-toothed tiger over here, don't go that way, right? And you begin to start having more and more sounds that are imitated. Now, being a good imitator means that you're more likely to survive, right? Having the capacity to imitate means that you're more likely to be able to communicate with other people in your clan, you know, make the right signals, all right, take care of each other. So the, G, the ability to imitate becomes a thing that is selected for in replication. And so the ability to imitate becomes more prominent, larger, bigger, until you start inventing words, concepts, fifth symphonies, religions, political views, all of these things are memes. What human beings seem to be now is replication machines for genes and memes. We physically replicate genes, that is, we procreate and we pass our genes on, and we mentally replicate memes. Now, I got infected with the meme meme this summer reading a book. And I am in the process at this moment of infecting you with the meme meme, right? I'm replicating what I read in that book in the hopes that you will get some understanding of this. That is, you'll be able to replicate the concepts in your mind in the further hopes that this will give you some idea of what's going on, why there are so many views and opinions. Because the views and opinions are memes. And their job is to replicate themselves. Now, when I say it's their job, it's just like the genes job is to replicate themselves. The genes don't all get together all right, let's make us a human being so we can replicate better. I mean, this is just the way it unplays. It, it unfolds. This is the way it plays out. It's the same thing with the memes. There are all these views and opinions floating around. Views about well, the election, views about Dharma, views about you know, paper or plastic, cow's milk or soy milk. All, right. all of this stuff is memes. And it keeps happening. And there's a great deal of pressure to replicate the memes. The memes that are successful are the ones that are easy to replicate or have some other value if they're not easy to replicate. If you get something going around in your head, some tune, it's because it's a tune that's easy to replicate. You probably don't get, you know, some very complex piece of classical music going in your head, it's probably some stupid advertising jingle, right? It has this easy ability to replicate. 
We are view and opinion replication machines, all right? And we need to be aware of this because otherwise we are simply driven by the views and opinions to replicate these views and opinions by acting them out in hopes that other people will imitate our views and opinions. This is a very slight introduction to the theory of memes. So in addition to all the Dharma that I've read to, to you today and recommend that you read on your own, I'm going to rec recommend another book. The book is The Meme Machine by Susan Blackmore. It's a very readable book, a very excellent description of the history of memetics, the theory of memes, and um, a way of looking at memes and seeing how they are the essential components of our culture. Furthermore, Susan Blackmore is a Zen practitioner. And in the very last chapters of the book, she talks about the fact that the self is a side effect of memes. Some memes, if they band together, have a better chance of survival. Uh, for instance, that's what religions are. You take a bunch of memes, you know, behave in this way, uh, drink this grape juice and it turns into blood, you know. You put all this together, you invent a religion. And these memes will survive well together because they coexist well together. The self is what she refers to as a memeplex. A bunch of memes that play well together. Our sense of self arises out of the interplay of all these elements of culture that we acquire through imitation. I'm doing the imitating, so I it must be existing, when actually all that's going on is replication pressure from the memes. In fact, the self, which is a memeplex, she gives the name selfplex. Right? It's just a bunch of memes having at you, and you're not really there. All that's there is genes that want to replicate and memes that want to replicate. So I highly recommend Susan Blackmore's book, The Meme Machine. Questions? A comment, yes. Questions or comments? I, I found this part of your talk fascinating, but not for the reasons you think. <laughs> Is we all have a certain view of reality, and now you introduce this other one which we can all turn into a belief system now. Right. It's quite easy to get infected with the meme meme and to hold the fixed view of the meme. That's right. Exactly. Don't, don't mistake that one. Take the meme of not holding to fixed views as the ultimate meme to hold to. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to have to let go of that one when you get to the other side as well. It, it seems like this, um, I guess this kind of brings up the point that in the course of spiritual practice, um, I think early on you become much more aware, obviously, of like what you're reading, the ideas you're sort of putting into your head. And um, 
also the ideas you're putting into your head about spiritual practice and like really sort of, um, for myself, I find, you know, a really strong uh, sort of wariness about, um, you know, adding new stuff to the pile of spiritual ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. You know I read, um, you know, a little bit of Ajahn Chah or, you know, um, a little bit of Suzuki Roshi, and it's like, okay, I can work with that for the next, you know, five years, and, you know, everything else just sort of, it, it, it seems very rapidly as one studies, I mean, I don't, maybe as one becomes more mature in, in the spiritual path, one is able to sort of assimilate ideas more quickly without grasping onto them. But as somebody that's sort of, you know, taking their first steps, I sort of feel like that it's very easy to get to a point where I am inundating myself with ideas and, you know, clinging sort of becomes the natural responses. Right. Sort of like, you know, putting the torch in front of my face <laughs> in high wind. Right. I definitely have a propensity for uh, putting out a lot of information and seeking a lot of information. So, yeah. The meme meme is a useful thing, but it's not necessary for the spiritual path. It may be a useful thing to have on the spiritual path. It may help with your understanding. And if you're just first starting out, it's highly recommended that you delve deeply into any particular spiritual path for five years before sort of bringing in other things. So, yeah, it may be that it's too soon to start bringing in other stuff. And, yeah, stick with Ajahn Chah and the Buddha. They'll definitely steer you right. But if you're interested and you want to bring in something else, this is the best thing I've found to bring in lately. Susan Blackmore, B-L-A-C-K-M-O-R-E, just like it sounds. There's a reading list on my website, and that book is mentioned on there. My website, L-E-I-G-H-B dot com. My teaching schedule's on there, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, all sorts of things. How to pack your bag for going on a three-year trip around the world. Okay. Did you have a question or you just you just got the holding it? Okay, so Richard, you had one last thing before we close, yes? I figure we should uh, close with a little meta. Alright. So in order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. Think of someone you care about, someone towards whom you can easily generate a feeling of love. Doesn't matter who it is, significant other, a child, dear friend, someone you admire, your cat. Get a sense of this being and then get a sense of what it feels like to love.
Now take this feeling of love and give it to yourself. No one deserves love any more than you. Think of the people you're close to. Bring them to mind one by one and give each of them this same feeling of love. Think of your acquaintances, people like your neighbors, your co-workers. Once again, bring them to mind and give them the same feeling of love that you give to someone easy to love. Think of someone you find difficult and give that person as much love as you can. Now share your love with the other people in this room. And then let it flow out to the members of this community. To everyone on the peninsula. And throughout the Bay Area. Keep opening your heart and let your love spread up and down the West Coast. And then all across the continent. Open your heart wider still and let the same feeling of love flow out to every living being on the planet. Humans, animals, birds, fish, insects, whatever living beings there may be, may they be loved.
Now put your attention back on yourself, back in your own heart, which just generated a world full of love. That much love is always available anytime you want it. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. very much. It is said that it is very good karma to teach the Dhamma, so I appreciate the opportunity. I also appreciate your Dhamma as well, so thank you.